So thank you, Sally and um, Linda. I do want to just reiterate what a great uh, conference they've put together, especially for VR. Uh, this is, while it's new to many people, it's um, been a long time coming. So my job today, last year I was able to give a talk at, uh, at GamesoundCon and I talked about what we had been doing at Berkeley for the last few years. Uh, we've had initiatives happening there really since about 2016 uh, and um, you know, we're a music school. We have the largest uh, number of musicians on a campus anywhere in the world, except for a school in China that has K through 12 and, and um, collegiate levels. So we have about five to 6,000 musicians every day hanging around our campus. It's a pretty special place. And as you can imagine, this opportunity that is presenting itself with a really new media is very exciting for us because we really see it as uh, um, a time when music and sound can really drive a lot of the uh, creative output that's happening. So my job is to, uh, for those of you who have not been working in this field or have not had a, uh, an opportunity to really experience, to get you just a baseline of knowledge. So it's similar to the talk that Brian gives in the, in the regular game audio track in that if you are coming to this from another, from music production, from post-production, from some other discipline, uh, my job is just to kind of seed you with some of the foundational ideas, some of the foundational um, terminology. Uh, and you'll see in the conference that later on today and tomorrow, there are some great really in the weeds talks about, you know, how are we gonna leverage this? But before we can leverage it, we need to know what is going on. So that's my goal, is to get everybody kind of on the same page. So when we talk about virtual reality, I was having this debate with some, some friends of mine. Um, is it virtual reality? Is it really virtual or is it controlled reality? Because as practitioners in this field, we do have the ability to control what our audience is gonna be seeing. And uh, probably one of the early uh, thoughts about that was the matrix. Uh, and then just this past year, we saw um, Ready Player One, which was a fantastic book and came out as a movie. And these really talk about immersing a human being in a, um, an environment that does not exist in the real world. Now, we have a lot of different terms that are being bandied about. There is the fully immersive, which is considered virtual reality. Uh, so is virtual reality film? Those of you who have studied film know that this was, uh, you know, a pretty groundbreaking uh, moment in film history where we were able to put together frames uh, to show motion. In uh, the Lumiere brothers, let's see if this one plays, it was not too happy with me. Um, uh, the Lumiere brothers, they had a, uh, one of the early films, they showed a train coming into a station with no sound and people literally screamed in the audience because they thought it was real. VR is our generation's version of feeling like it's real and really freaking us out in a, in a big way. So um, is it film? It is film. For those of you who have not seen Clouds Over Cedar, I highly recommend it. It is about an eight minute journalistic feat. It has won so many awards and it really puts you in the shoes of refugees in Syria. Uh, and you really feel like you're there. Uh, so is it film? Sometimes VR is film, yes. But it's more than that because we have this immersion. Is it a game? Those of you who are my age may have played Battle Tank. Um, it was an arcade game where you actually put your face up against this, uh, these goggles and you felt like you were in a tank. Uh, it really felt immersive in the 80s, I will uh, say. And now, of course, we have it in VR. So those of you who are, are needing a little retro, um, I encourage you to, to try out the game. There are several tank games that make sense. Um, you feel like you're in you know, that turret and everything else. So is it, is it a game? Uh, yes, VR is also a game. <laughs> Uh, now, when we move from VR and we start hearing things like augmented reality we, or an alternate reality, we are talking about bringing elements into the world 
that would not normally be there. Uh, those of you who like stories probably loved the I Love Bees campaign, which came out with Halo 2. It brought um, people together in a, in a made-up, very calculated and, and cunning story that got them excited for the, the release of this game. Of course, now we have um, we also have augmented reality that is happening in arcades. This is a game in uh, Japan called Hato, which you can see these people have on goggles. They are in a space, but they're seeing things in the space that don't exist in the real world. They're playing um, a kind of a beefed up dodgeball uh, kind of game. And I will say, if you haven't done these experiences, there are a lot of these location-based experiences which are popping up all around the world. Uh, go do it. Put on the if if you. Um, just as, a, as an experiment, go do it. Uh, you know, if you were a fan of uh, laser tag or paintball, um, this, is, this is another version of that. Now, most people know AR from what was the hit a few years ago, Pokemon Go, where you can actually see things in the world on your phone or your tablet's uh, display. Now, this image was from one of the Pokemon Go trailers, and this is what they wanted it to look like. Now, if you played, how many of you have played Pokemon Go? Now, if you played Pokemon Go, that is not the experience that we had. <laughs> that is what we wish we could have, uh, and we are getting there, <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, the other one that, that comes to mind is, um, oh, I'm blanking on the zombie uh, TV show, but, uh, there's an augmented reality, Walking Dead, where you're um, fighting zombies in the world, and it's, and it's trying to place the objects in the world that you're in. Which brings us, actually, to what is known as mixed reality, where a, uh, a device can scan a room, and it can assess, it can create a mesh, so it knows that there's a table in front of you, and it knows what should happen on a table. These are a couple of the kind of leading mixed reality, augmented reality interfaces that are happening right now. Magic Leap, which just released a few months ago. The HoloLens has been with us for some time, but you can see in their uh, kind of promotional material, it looks like the blocks are actually on the table. That is a different level of understanding. It's more than just putting something on your phone display and having it you know, um, in front of what else is in the room. It is scanning and knowing what is happening uh, in the space that you're in. Um, this is a, a slide from a company that does a thing called the Bridge Sensor, which you can attach to your iPad or your iPhone, and you can mesh out what is uh, local in the room. So these mixed reality interfaces are really coming up to speed. Uh, they are still early days. You know, they're, uh, sometimes they work really well. Some rooms, they don't work at all. Uh, and, you know, but it's, it's definitely coming at us. Now, another version of mixed reality is uh, this idea of a location-based experience. Carne Arena um, has won a, a um, Special Technical Academy Award. It is a uh, in-location uh, experience having to deal with being at the border as uh, people are trying to pass over the border. And you put on this harness uh, that holds the computer that we need to be able to generate all these visuals. You put on the goggles. In this experience, um, he is making you actually take off your shoes so that you are feeling the dirt and the sand underneath your feet, and you feel like you're in the space. There is another uh, um, very highly regarded uh, location-based experience which just came out at the Oculus Connect conference. Uh, it's a Star Wars experience, and I will tell you, one of um, another faculty member at Berkeley went to this experience, and so you feel you're you're in the battle. The stormtroopers are around. You've got this headset on, and, and you're in a room that has boxes and things that are physical that you can touch. So you can lean, you can crouch behind a crate. You see it fully uh, visualized as what it would look like on a Star Wars set. In reality, if you took the goggles off, it's literally just a box sitting there. But um, this friend of mine who uh, did this at Oculus Connect said that, you know, she was fine. Like, she could storm in and shoot and the whole thing. But then when, Darth, when they got to the end and Darth Vader appeared, she literally went and hid behind all of her teammates because she was so scared. 
it was Darth Vader and he was going to kill her. Um, and so these experiences really uh, create the kind of immersion that we've been wanting, I think, since the beginning of time, since you know, the, uh, the train coming into the station. We wanted to feel like we were there. And sound becomes such an important part of that. So this is from an article which I've um, notated for you. It's a really nice article if, uh, if you're ever wondering kind of what the terminology is. Uh, now, the, the last term of this new kind of reality is XR. Extended reality really, um, really applies to all of these new realities in all of their forms, and it has become a warehousing term. So even my talk, you know, I labeled it as 360 VR, VR, AR, MR. It would be a lot easier if I could have just said XR. Uh, and I think in a few years we'll be there and we'll be understanding the new realities as being extended reality. Uh, but that's a term that uh, we're all just starting to see kind of in the industry. There's um, some overlap. So how is XR different? It delivers, as I mentioned, an immersion that we've not yet uh, been able to feel. We certainly have all been in the movie theater and we've felt like we are connected to the characters uh, that we, uh, you know, the music will swell and we'll cry or we'll be scared or whatever. Um, but in VR, because it's not just the sound, it's the visuals and uh, it can be other uh, sensory objects, we honestly feel like we're in whatever this situation is that has been created for us. The other big thing about XR is that the viewer has agency. Even if we are watching a linear video or a linear film, we as the viewer still have the ability to decide where we're going to be looking and what we want to focus on. So that in itself has created this opportunity for us as uh, musicians and sound designers to be able to help guide uh, somebody to where we think the important parts are of uh, the experience that they're in. And then of course this 360 degree visual and sound field is like none other. Uh, it, it, it just, if you haven't done it yet, you really should. So uh, we have the visual, which is what most people think about. They think about 360 video, they think about 360 VR games. Uh, but then the auditory sound plays an incredibly important part to creating that immersion. Uh, but then we also have this multi-sensory uh, possibility. So we think about things like haptics. Uh, I don't know how many of you were so excited back with, I think it was, was it the PS1 or the PS2 where our um, shock controller started you know, giving us force feedback and it felt so real when you were um, there in battle or whatever. So we are just like if, you, if you've read Ready Player One or if you went to see the movie, uh, you know, haptics, the touch is really coming along. There are vests that you can put on that will give you feedback. Uh, we're starting to get smell and taste, but those are the only time I've seen those experiences have been in very controlled environments. It's kind of like if you've ever gone to Disney, uh, maybe with your uh, kids or your uh, nieces and nephews, they used to have this 4D experience where it would include, you know, blowing fans at you, maybe um, raindrops, other parts of our um, sensory were included in those experiences. So these are all coming. They're either here or they're coming, uh, you know, a lot of it. But right now, for us, the visual and the audio are really the, the places where we can get a lot of great work done. So, in a 360 video, I talked about the viewer agency. If you've ever worked on film, the cinematographer is very particular. You know, they'll set up a frame and they'll be like, this is what I want the person to look at. In 360, you do not have that capacity. You pop a 360 camera in the middle of a scene and everything around that scene is picked up. So you have to think differently about uh, how you stage. Many of you who may have worked in experimental theater uh, may have had to deal with this anyway because the staging of actors and um, events really has to be planned out when you're not really sure where the viewer is gonna be. Uh, and uh, it also impacts what we can do as audio people. So for those of you who may have at one point seen, you know, Singing in the Rain where they're hiding mics in 
potted plants and in you know the dresses of the characters with 360 sound if you don't want those mics to be seen you have to come up with some really creative ways uh, to have them picking up what you want them to pick up without being in the scene because the, the entire scene is in the scene. So that has changed some of our production techniques. Uh, and for some things, honestly, if it's a music video, I don't really care if I see a mic. It's very apparent that I'm recording sound. I mean, again, it depends on the, depends on the client. So what happens when we are dealing with a 360 video is we are creating what is known as a 360 degree sound field. That sound field is surrounding your ears and you are feeling as if you are in the environment that you are seeing. Now, to get to uh, this 360 sound field, I wanted to take us back a little bit uh, to just talk about how we've done production in the past because a lot of times people get stuck. They're like, well, I have to record this way because I am delivering this way. Well, in the past, um, sorry, I, I forgot which was the next slide. Um, I'm not seeing my preview, but uh, in order to, uh, another great property or great uh, content that you can watch really to get to this 360 degree sound field is this project called Notes on Blindness. This was a man who kept a journal and he was um, slowly going blind. And this is an interactive experience that gives you the sensation of what it means uh, to eventually lose your sight. And as you can imagine, a lot of uh, what we experience in this um, really fantastic uh, piece of art is that sensation of how important our ears are. So I would encourage you to go listen to that. So, Production of audio. We started off in mono, right? We had a mono pickup device. We had to arrange our musicians around some cone, and we were delivering that uh, audio in mono. There are many people <laughs> currently who talk about the fact that it was audio recording that actually took us out of the environment. We had this very unnatural both capture and playback system in mono. We would never experience musicians in mono in the real world before we had audio recording. So in some ways, this uh, new reality is the, um, the uh, perfection of a technology that just wasn't set up to do what we wanted it to do in the first place. So we had mono recording and we had a mono delivery device. Then, um, our good friend Les Paul started doing multi-track and multi-mic recording, but we were still delivering in mono. So there's a separation between what we're using during the production versus what we're delivering. Of course, we went from multi-track uh, and multi-mic uh, situations to delivering stereo. That stereo was fascinating because it gave us the phantom center image. Based on what was coming from the left or right speaker, we could all of a sudden get a sense that there was something coming from the middle without a speaker playing back to us. Uh, this phantom image is really how these new, uh, it's not a new technology, how ambisonics and binaural help us to be able to localize sound. We do not, it's a virtual speaker system. This is a virtual speaker system unless you have some of those um, early recordings where they panned everything either hard left or hard right. Uh, so we went from stereo to surround. We had five speakers. Um, the problem with surround is that it's very uh, particular about where the speakers are and also about where the listener is. There's really only one sweet spot. We definitely have some uh, high technology happening in our movie theaters, but uh, for home listening or for uh, just the general uh, viewer, uh, this kind of a setup is very difficult to know. We also, while I'm showing a, a well, I guess I'm showing a 5.0 because there's no sub, there is no standardization in the surround environment. We can be 5.1, 7.1, 10.2, whatever, you know, whatever the, the room uh, supports. The other thing about surround is it's still planar. It's all on an XY plane, if you will. There's only what's at ear height. There is nothing happening above us or below us. So it is not 360 immersive. It is XY immersive if you will. So these planar sounds definitely got us pretty far, uh, but uh, they weren't yet 
uh, to the real world. Now, I don't have a, a graphic for it, but we are starting to have loudspeaker playback systems like Dolby Atmos, which do deliver 360. And they, again, though, they're very particular in, in the setup and in the technology that uh, we can use. So those are all called channel-based systems. We've got single channels that are going to single speakers, and they all get mixed uh, in order to create this uh, XY uh, difference that we, that we hear. Binaural and ambisonics are considered sound and wave field systems. They are not reliant on a particular speaker setup or a uh, physical location uh, because they can create, like that phantom center image, they can create a, uh, a virtual speaker in space. You may have seen the binaural head from Neumann, who it's been around for a long time. It uh, is meant to capture sound, uh, how our ears capture sound. Our ears are very particular. Our ear canals come into play, the shape of our ears, our torso. Everything creates what we have, which is a unique uh, fingerprint for, our, um, for how we experience sound. Any of you uh, have bought the neurophones? Maybe. Oh, you've got to try it. Um, Neurophones are a new uh, uh, headphone system that actually have a technology that they ping your ear canals and they measure how you hear, and then they play back your unique kind of footprint of audio. It's pretty fascinating. So we've got the binaural head, which a lot of people have used. How many of you have heard the classic barbershop binaural? Yeah, right. So. The thing with the barbershop is that it was recorded in binaural. I don't. I mean, there's so many versions. Who knows how they recorded it? But it um, it it puts your head in the space, and it basically puts the barbershop on your head. So if I turn my head, the barbershop. I'm still looking at the same place in the barbershop. I'm not in the barbershop. Rather, the barbershop is on me. Now we have another uh, new. Um, newcomer, a couple years old. Sennheiser has these amazing uh, earbuds that, you, that have a lightning uh, connection, so you can actually record your own binaural at the space of where your ears are. So you can see here that it's an earbud, so you can use them as headphones, but then they have uh, little microphones on each side. So the binaural um, uh, recording technique is not, is not dead, it's not lost, it's still being used uh, even today. So binaural gives us finally the ability to hear sound in 360. Because our ears are set up to be able to localize not just the flat plane, but everything uh, to the height of where the birds are, to, um, I don't know, what's at our feet? Turtles, do turtles make sound? I don't know. Um, I'm sure they do. Uh, um, I'll have to come up with a better analogy next talk. Uh, so. Um, the uh, binaural playback system, it, it can come from binaural mics and be played back on a set of headphones so that we hear it. But just like mono versus stereo, there is no requirement that we record in binaural in order to deliver a binaural signal. We can, and that's what I'll have some slides a little bit later on, we can do this in the box just like we used to do, just like we've done in Pro Tools forever with uh, surround sound. We don't go into a session and pop a surround mic and say that's our mix. Um, so that brings us to ambisonic. So all of this has been to get us to the point of understanding that ambisonics, not a new technology, just one that has uh, come up again because of this interest in VR, ambisonics allows for that binaural sensation, but it also will turn with your head. So if I have a bird over here making a sound, I will hear it above me and to my right. If I turn my head, the bird will actually stay there until such time as it maybe is behind me. So ambisonics is really just a, um, it's a tracking version of binaural. So we're still getting the fully immersive 360, but now we know where the person is actually looking and we're keeping things in place. So I, I hope somebody in this room goes and does a VR of a barbershop so that we can hear it in ambisonics eventually. Um, all right, so it's localized sound in XR. 
we can turn our head and the sound will actually feel as if it is staying in place as we are turning our head, as it would in the real world. Now, um, with, uh, when we start talking about uh, turning our head and rotation, you've probably heard some phrases like three degrees of freedom. There's three degrees of freedom, which means that depending on the head tracker that we're using, it knows if I'm turning my head left, right, if I'm rolling it over, or if I'm doing some crazy weird tilt. So three degrees of freedom is a device like your phone, like an Oculus Go, like any of the mobile devices that knows not only where you're looking, but how your head is turning as you look. Uh, and this is, um, this, as I mentioned, this is available on many of the lower end or the medium grade VR devices. So that's what the three degrees of freedom refers to. The fact that not only am I turning on a plane, but I'm turning on three axes at the same time. Now, recording in ambisonics uh, has been with us, again, for a long time. There have been sound field mics. And the easiest way to describe recording in ambisonics is how many of you have ever done MS recording? So MS is a mid-side recording technique that we do with an omni or a cardioid mic in the middle and a bi-directional mic on the side. Or, um, a coincident bi-directional mic that is picking up left-right. What it does when you do an MS recording, if we step back to uh, the phantom uh, center image, we then have the ability in the mix to adjust how much of the center uh, capsule that we're gonna use in that mix versus how much of the sides. And what that does is it lets us adjust the stereo depth or the spatialization across the stereo field during the mix. It's pretty fantastic if you've ever done location recording and you're not quite sure what's gonna happen uh, after the fact, doing an MS pair gives you a bunch of opportunity during post-production. Ambisonics is an amped up MS system. We still have a center mic which is omnidirectional, so it's gonna hear the same from every direction. And then it has three other capsules, which are the equivalent of figure eight. One that is picking up front back, one that is picking up left right, and one that is picking up up and down. What happens is each of those capsules will put out their signal, and then we will have to encode and decode on the way out. Uh, when we're in post-production. So ambisonics isn't, even though that mic looks pretty frightening, um, it actually looks pretty cool. <laughs> I shouldn't say it's frightening. Uh, what it is giving us the ability to do is to make the spatial adjustment during post-production. Rather than having to determine at the record time what are the important uh, angles that we need to pick up in a space. So what I'm showing you here is what is considered to be first order ambisonics. We've got that center signal, which is omnidirectional, and then we've got um, the equivalent of W, X, and Y. If you've, been, if you've worked in Unity at all, you know that the axes are um, very important to determining 3D space. So we've got an X, Y, uh, which is kind of like surround, it's just that planar, but now we also have the ability to uh, figure out height. Now, if I had a, a great graphic, what I'd be able to show you is, just like I was able to easily show that phantom center speaker image, I now have the ability to create a phantom anywhere in that 360 space because I've picked up the entire uh, surround of that environment. So. Ambisonics mics, there are several out on the, um, out on the market right now. Uh, let's see if I have the right slide. I would encourage you to go to N Debate's um, article, and you can just Google comparing ambisonic mics. He has some really nice uh, audio uh, examples from a bunch of the different mics that are out there right now. He also has a fascinating paper about his uh, ambisonic recording experiments um, with live chamber groups in uh, spaces like churches and things. So if you're interested in this as a recording format, this would be a great place for you to go listen and to um, go understand what each of the mics is giving us. Now, um, 
when I was describing that MS pair, if you have ever had to study audio theory, you know that when you make combinations of different pickup patterns, it gives you the ability to locate sound uh, differently, depending on whether you use more of the cardioid or more of the figure eight. You can make lots of different combinations if you have coincident mics uh, sitting virtually in the same place in the sound field. Now, Alan Bloomline, who really was the inventor of stereo, did this with a Bloomline pair. So you may have seen uh, people recording maybe with two 414s set to be figure eights, and they're set up as an XY. So if you guys were my recording uh, you know, origin, I would have one facing left and one facing right. And Bloomline is a fantastic spatialized signal Part of the reason, though, it never, it doesn't always work is because with that figure eight, I'm picking up the signal to the left and the right, but I'm also picking up the signal to the back left and the back right. So what happened with stereo is the back signal got folded back into the front, and that made the signal not necessarily sound correct if you were working in a stereo monitoring environment. So if you know anything about um, these kind of extended XY techniques, I would say that uh, being in an ambisonics uh, production environment will come quite easily once you've uh, had the chance to, to work with it. Now, that four um, diaphragm mic, like I said, is a first order. This diagram is showing us that there are higher order ambisonics there are higher order ambisonic mics that have come out. The Eigen mic uh, is a third order mic that's been out for a long time. And basically, as we add capsules, we add definition to the positional um, characteristic of the sound that we are capturing. So when we talk about ambisonics, mostly we're talking about first order. Many of the platforms right now only support first order ambisonics but we are starting to see higher order ambisonics come online as a distribution. And you know, so the core um, sound company, came, they were, had the Tetra mic, which is a four cardioid mic. They now have a second order ambisonics mic. So if you are doing, uh, capturing music or sound that could benefit from more uh, defined localization, then you can start looking at these higher order uh, systems. And they are, you know, when you're recording on a first order mic, you have four XLR cables coming out of that mic that you have to capture all at the same level. You wanna have basically a digital mic pre so you can set them all exactly the same. So as you are upping the ante with four or nine or more capsules, you're upping the ante on the recording format uh, that you have to do. Now, early on I said that we don't have to record in the same way that we're gonna deliver. So if, if we're a classical, uh, some good friends of mine record at you know, Symphony Hall in Boston all the time. He's probably gonna you know, use an Eigen mic, which is a third order. For us working in games, we can do it differently, just like we can do stereo differently. Um, now, each of the mics, this happens to be a, a plug-in panel from Am the Ambio mic from Sennheiser. Each of the mics, uh, as I mentioned, there's raw data coming off of four capsules. And that raw data is considered to be A format. A format is literally what's on each of the capsules. Just like an MS pair, you would record the center mic on a channel and the figure eight on a different channel, but eventually you have to convert that to get the stereo spread that we want. We have to do the same thing with uh, ambisonics mics. We have raw data coming off the mic, which is on the left, and then that gets turned into this spatialized format, which is considered B format. So A format is the raw format, B format is a converted format, which then starts to sound um, in that localized 360 field. To further complicate things, there are several different versions of B format. <laughs> so you can see on the top right, uh, I think this is giving us FUMA and Ambix, um, there are different orderings. So for those of you who work in surround and Pro Tools, you already know this. You are not necessarily delivering left, right. Uh, so we can see here left, center, right, left, surround, right, surround, LFE. 
or the SMPTE protocol is looking for a different ordering. That's what the difference is uh, on the Ambisonics B format side. There is a difference in the ordering and there's a difference in the normalization. For any of you who've had to do fold down and surround, you know that there are different theories with what you do with those surround channels. How much do you put them into the stereo signal? So, so Ambisonics is no different. Um, and uh, one of the other, just like we saw on the previous slide, how we channelize uh, that signal going into that single audio file is also different depending on the format that we're using. This happens to be from the WISE manual, and it, it's a pretty good representation of um, two of the different channel ordering uh, formats that you'll see out there. So before you all like get heavy and weighty about all of this technical stuff, I will say that the, the, the best advice I can give you is just find out where you're delivering and what their specification is. YouTube has a different specification than Facebook. Uh, are you delivering Steam VR, PSVR? Whatever it is, it's, it's similar to post-production. You just have to find out what the final destination is going to be. They will tell you straight up, is it first order, is it higher order, what channel um, uh, ordering are they using? So, that would be my uh, biggest um, advice. Now, for workflow, uh, and there are going to be some additional panels or talks about a very the, the nuts and bolts of workflow, but I wanted to give you kind of an upfront, just if you want to get up and running. Uh, in um, For linear video, what a lot of people are using is this thing called Facebook 360 Spatial Workstation. And this is a free uh, set of plugins. Now, they um, provide, we can see on this panel, it's actually pretty cool because it gives you a spatializer. So that blue dot on the top left is locating the sound on that track in that 360 window. The window that we're seeing is an equirectangular window. It's basically like a map. We see maps all the time on a rectangle, but they are actually folded around a sphere. An equirectangular is a version of that sphere, uh, and it works like a normal panner. You can see that the one, uh, which is the uh, source, uh, is up in the left corner, and for the person who's seeing it, they're gonna see it up there. So we can automate these panning just like we do for normal uh, post-production videos. So the spatial workstation gives us that. It also gives us, and you can't quite see it, but it also does height. So we've got azimuth elevation and distance. So are we, where are we on that XY plane? How high or low are we? And how far away are we in that 360 sphere? The other thing that we have here is um, a meter that is, of course, very useful, and then we have this audio 360 control. I would highly encourage just go download any random 360 video and start playing with it, start creating some sound for it, and start working uh, with this plugin. Now, there is one catch, and that's that in order to do this ambisonics audio, we need a DAW that has a huge number of buses. So right now, the Facebook 360 workstation supports Pro Tools HD. So just as uh, you couldn't do surround with native uh, and Pro Tools, um, you need Pro Tools HD in order to have the busing system that will allow you to do uh, this uh, spatialization or Reaper which I have become a big fan. I was a fan before, I just never had a real reason to use it. Reaper is, you know, for commercial uses, I think it's a couple hundred bucks. For personal use, it's maybe 50 or 60 bucks. It's well worth paying for, and there is a trial period. Um, or Nuendo. So if you are using Logic or DP or GarageBand, um, you can still use those apps to produce the audio that is eventually going to get spatialized. But when you go to do your mix, you're gonna to have to be in one of the DAWs that supports this higher busing uh, capacity. So Facebook 360 Spatial Workstation. Uh, there are, of course, many, many other plugins. Um, one other kind of go-to 
app, just like if, for those of you who have worked in post-production, sometimes the videos come and they're encoded in some crazy scheme that the editor was using and you can't play it on your machine. The same thing happens in 360. FFmpeg is a command line uh, converter, which is also free and there are uh, UI um, interfaces that will work with it. So if you need to convert a video, sometimes you'll drop a video on the Facebook Spatializer and it won't be able to play it. So you'll have to find out uh, with the FFmpeg how to re-encode that. It's just like going from H.264 to H.265 or something like that. So there are a ton of plugins and I know you guys wanna know what they are, but I could no sooner sit here and tell you every EQ plugin that exists in the world than I could tell you every 360 plugin that is out there. There are more and more um, every day they are coming out. Some are great, some are free and open source and great, some are not free and not open source and great. It's just, a, it's, there's much more now than there, than there has been and every day I feel like I'm getting a new notice. So the, my plugin slide is empty because I had no possible way to um, show you that. So let's talk about games. Both Unity and Unreal are fully supportive of VR and Ambisonics Audio. Uh, they have native support uh, and they're quite easy to work in. And again, how we are going to uh, record our audio and output the audio do not have to be tied together. With games, one of the issues uh, with Ambisonics and with uh, Ambisonics recording is that like the dummy head with binaural recording, you are sticking a mic in a place. What that means is it's going to be spatialized for that location that you're gonna be uh, standing in. If I have a game where I can walk down a corridor, that ambisonics or binaural uh, recording is not going to serve me in the same way because it's going to remain locked where it is. So once you get into games, uh, we get into what's known as object-based audio. Uh, there is another great listening uh, exercise that you can do, it was on designingsound.org, uh, and they, um, uh, it was Chris Lane, and you can listen to some of the various plugins that are available, different SDK kits for both Unity. I think this one's actually all in Unity, but they're pretty, um, both Unity and Unreal both have a lot of capacity in this area. So I would say get some headphones and, and go listen. Uh, with a game, when I talk about being able to walk down a corridor, what I then come against is six degrees of freedom. So now at this point, not only can I turn my head and roll it and do all that stuff, but I can walk forward, I can walk to the left, I can crouch, I can jump. So the six degrees of freedom is talking about not just the orientation of my head, but also the positional tracking of my body. And the six degrees of freedom is a high-end version of, uh, of VR. Uh, being aware of being able to walk in a space. Now, much of the, um, this high end we are seeing as what are called standing experiences. VR uh, experiences can be expected to be seated, where basically you're gonna be on one of those office chairs and you're just gonna roll around and you're gonna not really roll, you're just gonna turn around and look at stuff. Or I can be standing in a room, it's usually a mapped space, it knows where I am, and I can walk forward and I will get closer to an item in the virtual world. This is considered six degrees of freedom. And it's another term that you'll see quite frequently. So games, like film, have gone through this, uh, and music, have gone through, you know, we started off with games in stereo, we then have games in surround, which is very valid, uh, and then we added height, so you know, with an ambisonic system, and that eventually got us to this 360 sound of where we are placing objects in the world. And this is all very straightforward now in our modern engines. I will say we are very lucky uh, to have both Unity and Unreal that's, uh, that are built actually to enable us to do this. It's very similar to the way that you could see that you could drag panning around in the Facebook uh, spatial workstation. So, but when we're in a game, does everything get spatialized? <laughs> if you've worked in Unity or Unreal, you know that there's been this concept of 3D versus 2D sounds. 
3D sounds are the ones that we place in the world and they come at us from an object that's making a sound in the world. 2D sounds come at us as something making a commentary on the world that we're in, like music. When we have underscore or dramatic music in a game or a film, we are not expecting that that music is actually in the scene. Rather, it's in our head. We are being um, dramatically manipulated by that music. Same thing with some uh, voiceover. I'm not gonna say dialogue because a lot of times dialogue comes from an object in the world, but voiceover is meant to be in our head. That stuff is not spatialized. That is what is called headlocked. Headlocked, and this comes from the Facebook engineers, headlocked is like the barbershop binaural. When I turn my head, it's not, it doesn't know that I'm actually moving my head anywhere. So it just stays on my ears. And that's typically how we deliver music still in VR. Uh, spatialized is the one on the left where the object stays in place in that 360 world. So when you are producing and when you're getting ready to deliver, many tools will let you deliver both the spatialized ambisonics uh, content plus what is known as the headlocked content. This is from that Facebook 360 spatial workstation, and we can see here that I'm going to be able to spit out an ambisonics mix. It's gonna be formatted in the channel that I choose. Uh, we can see here we have B format, first order, and second order, both FUMA and Ambix. Again, it depends where you're delivering. Uh, that will give you the clue of how you should spit out that ambisonic sound. And then I can deliver a headlocked, basically a stereo version of whatever shouldn't be turning in space. So I've been talking a little bit about the hardware. Uh, the head-mounted displays right now that are out in the world, in the US at least, there are some different versions that are out in uh, Asia. But here for us in the US, the PlayStation VR, which is actually a very reasonably, reasonably, reasonably priced accessory. All you need is a PS4 in order to use the PSVR. Uh, or the HTC Vive or the Oculus Rift. Both the Vive and the Rift require very high-end PCs. You should definitely look at the specifications of a PC that you're planning on using for VR, especially the video card. The video card needs to be really beefy. When we put on these goggles for VR, the system has to draw, you know, we've all thought about 60 frames per second in games. The system has to draw two high-res versions of 60 frames per second. So the video card becomes a very crucial part of being able to work in VR. So the, the Vive and the Rift are fantastic. They're quite a bit more expensive uh, than the PlayStation. Uh, on the mobile market, the Samsung Gear has been around for a while. It takes most of the modern gear, most of the modern Samsung phones, and it just slides in to its headset. Uh, we also, what was just released was the Oculus Go, which is a, um, doesn't need a phone. It's all encompassed in the headset itself. It has a mini computer and the display capability. Uh, Google Daydream, uh, and you probably all have heard about Google Cardboard. I would say at some conference or just go on Amazon and buy a Google Cardboard if you don't have any way of viewing VR or 360 video. It costs you about 10 bucks. Uh, but when you're looking, when you flip your phone on its side, you'll see a little cardboard uh, icon which will throw that uh, video into 360 cardboard where you can experience actually turning your head and looking up and down. These are the, the low-end um, devices that are out on the market today. Uh, so, and we also have um, both iOS and Android that can play uh, nicely with these mobile setups. Uh, distribution platforms, again, I almost didn't put this up here because there have been so many that have cropped up. There are lots of places where you can distribute 360 video as well as uh, VR games. But Facebook, of course, with their uh, purchase of Oculus, they've been heavy in the game with Facebook VR. YouTube VR is really a fun place to go uh, see some things. Of course, like most media that's open, there's some really not that engaging pieces up there, but then there are some really great things like you know, Clouds Over Cedra. Um, Steam VR is uh, really coming online. There's, there's a ton of uh, great games in there. Um, 
Viveport comes with the HTC Vive and has another platform to buy games. Uh, and then, of course, the iOS App Store and uh, Google Play are all kind of sitting in this space right now. So one of the things I wasn't sure if I was going to have time to talk about, and I know that there's a person talking about HRTF later on in the day, but I'll go through this. I skimmed over why ambisonics and binaural actually work. Why are we able to spatialize sound when it's only coming uh, from you know, our headphones or from a speaker system? Uh, it has to do with the way that we hear. So because we have two ears, they're separated uh, by a certain space. And they arrive at our ears at different times. That's called the interaural time difference. So we can see here that uh, you know, the right ear is getting that signal slightly ahead of the, um, of the left ear. Now, uh, there's also a level difference that's happened. So because we're getting inclusion with our head, the signal that we'll get um, on the left side in this case is going to be slightly lower. So you will, in further talks, be talking about the interval time difference and uh, the level difference, as well as there are some phase differences that happen. This all leads to the fact that in order to deliver binaural and ambisonics audio, we have to take into consideration where in space we are, how big our head is, and the shape of our ears. And I know that there will be a panelist um, talking about this in specific. So, uh, oh, two books. Um, that are quite good, uh, Stefan Schutz's uh, New Realities in Audio, it's, and it is a practical guide. It has some very practical um, ideas for you. And then uh, kind of more along the lines of research and academia is this Immersive Sound, which is a, a collection of essays uh, put out by AES, the Audio Engineering Society. So uh, I hope your head is swimming now. If you've never had to deal with this stuff, there's a lot to talk about, but hopefully you have enough information uh, to make the rest of the day worth your while and you're not gonna feel like you're totally not understanding what they're talking about. Um, and I've gone a little long, so I'm not sure I have time. Okay, one question. <laughs> Oh, getting feedback. I don't know about that. I will say that within VR has some really high quality 360 video. They have the clouds over Cedra and they have um, the Hallelujah, which uh, Joel talked about last, last year. So it's the Leonard Cohen version of it. So I would say within, but there's also the New York Times is doing a ton of journalism. They have New York Times VR app as well as the BBC. So there are a lot of people who are leveraging this format uh, for things that aren't just entertainment. So thank you all. I appreciate your time today. And um, I'll see you around the conference.